everyone. This is Solemn Literary Press. Um, I'm your host, Bart Cruz. And I'm your co-host, Riley Bounds. And this is the first episode of the Solemn Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in Christian literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation in evangelicalism. Today, we're excited to invite renowned Christian poet D.S. Martin to the podcast. D.S. Martin is the author of four poetry collections, two of which include Ampersand and Conspiracy of Light, poems inspired by the legacy of C.S. Lewis. He is poet in residence at McMaster Divinity College, the series editor for the Poemia uh, Poetry Series, and has edited three anthologies, The Turning Aside, Adam, Eve, and The Writers of the Apocalypse, and In a Strange Land. And most recently, three of his poems were published in our, in our inaugural Solemn Journal <clears throat> um, in the fall of 2020. He is a father to two adult sons and a husband living with his wife in Brampton, Ontario. And you can find him at his website, dsmartin.ca. Um, also, more information will be provided in the show notes, as well as a link to his contributor page on the Solemn website if you want to find out more about him. Don, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the Solemn Podcast. I'm honored. Awesome. Well, let's get started. Um, yeah, so in, you know, we published uh, three of your poems, and one of those is An Angel Questions Our Answers in, you know, our fall 2020 edition. So what struck me was the last section of the first stanza. It says, but please, descendant of dust, trust us when we say there's so much more you don't get. And what did you have in mind when writing that? Uh, I personally see this sort of as an angel helping or aiding the audience, um, you know, man, presumably, um, you know, as they plead for them to understand their limitations and their finiteness. Um, and sort of, I didn't write this in the question, but on the other side of it, um, I was thinking in the background of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, where you have the demon sort of conspiring against man. But in your sort of, in your writing and in your work, you have the opposite end where, although it might seem demeaning to say to humans, you know, you don't get it. I think that's actually a benefit. Um, so I was just wondering if I'm if I'm reading your your writing or your poem correctly. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Bart, you're absolutely right. What I'm doing here, it's I'm kind of interacting in this poem with the idea that well, we're always trying to make the mysteries of God fit into our own interpretations, um, into our systematic theologies, into our statements of faith, and such. And I believe scripture is written using poetry and story. Those are the primary uh, literary uh, vehicles that are used. They're used to help us see that God doesn't want us leaning on our own understanding. And yet it seems we're always fighting against him in this. And I think if you read that poem with what I just said in light, I don't even think you need what I just said, really, because you are, you are quite right with your interpretation. I think it's a, it's, probably one of my more transparent poems in a certain way, because it's wrestling against some of those things. <clears throat> yeah, that's great, Don, thank you. Um, so my next question would be, uh, why should people care about poetry, especially non-poets? 
um, you know, in America, especially, I mean, we live in such a, um, uh, a, a culture where science is so revered and the arts are, um, well, they're, they're viewed as kind of uh, non-essential. Um, and so what would be the, just the kind of the practical end of that? Like, why should, why should, uh, a plumber or, you know, a doctor or somebody else who has to get up at five in the morning, you know, every day just care about poetry? Well, really, uh, Riley, what you're saying is why should we care about art? And to me, the short answer is beauty and goodness and truth. I believe the primary purpose of the Bible is to teach us about God. And the main thing we learn about God in Genesis chapter one is that he's creative. We also hear the mysterious idea that we have been made in him, his image. So if we put all those ideas together, you'll, you'll see why I feel we should care about all forms of creativity. And I don't merely mean the arts, because I think everyone is creative in one way or another. And we don't always, sometimes we just look at the, what we call the arts in quotation marks, but everyone has creativity in them. Again, looking at the Bible, we see that the primary form of expression that God has included in scripture is poetry. So my question would be, how are pastors, theologians, or ordinary churchgoers going to be able to read and understand the Bible if they do not know how to understand poetry. I believe many errors of interpretation would be completely eliminated if pastors regularly read poetry. Reading poetry is a spiritual discipline. It's an exercise in discernment. Poetry teaches us how to question what we are reading. It teaches us to unravel what a written text is saying and ask ourselves if we understand it and if we agree with it. Martin Luther believed that nothing better equips people for the skillful study of scripture than literary study. Reading poetry teaches us to slow down. Our society has little patience for such things as poetry or authentic spirituality. We need to learn how to slow down if we want to engage with either poetry or authentic spirituality. Besides all this, poetry is a wonderful vehicle for playfully seeking how to understand our world. It's both serious and fun at the same time. I loved, <clears throat> I loved your answer, Don. It was and what struck me about that whole answer, I know there's a lot in there, but I think the fact that you said reading poetry can be a spiritual discipline, I found that very true to be, um, I, I found that to be very true in my life, you know, personally. Um, yeah, that's just, I wonder if you could say more about that. Um, yeah, it's just a curious thought. Well, I really believe that we as a people, especially now, probably more so than ever before in, in my thinking, although I'm sure there were times in history this could also be said, but right now, perhaps more than any other time, we have people on different, let's just say political spectrums, 
never mind the spiritual, which is even more significant, but on political spectrums, we have people on the right, people on the left who do not stop and discern. They just listen to what they hear, they buy it totally and run with it. What poetry helps us to do is to stop and say, is this true? And I think it's important to read poetry, not just the poetry of the Bible, which you come to it and you say, okay, I'm gonna just agree that everything's true and go through it, but to read poetry by Christian poets, by non-Christian poets and say to yourself as you're reading, is that true? Or do I agree with that? Or if I don't agree with it, is there truth there that maybe, or maybe I'm reading it the wrong way I need to think about this more? It's a, it's a place to wrestle with truth and to get at truth and to learn discernment, a school for discernment. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like you're positing uh, the task to just learn how to listen and have a conversation well. <laughs> because, you know, a lot like you alluded to, a lot of that is lost in our day and age. Um, so yeah, wonderful. Um, so I guess, how should, I, you might have gone into this a little bit, but um, maybe if you have anything specific you want to add, how should someone read a poem? How should they approach it? Uh, maybe more on a practical level of sorts. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm going to say one word I've said already, and that is slowly. You don't read a poem like you read a news article or an email or even most novels. You must read a poem slowly. It's a little like the way you follow a detailed recipe. You start at the beginning and only move forward once you have a sense of where it's going or when you encounter something that you need to focus on. Now, even if you disagree with some aspect of this recipe, you know, you're a great cook or great baker and you're, if you disagree with some aspect, you still need to pay close attention to it to understand what they're saying so that you know what you're doing. And if you don't know what an ingredient in the recipe is, you have to find out. So in some cases, you have to do a little bit of research. In most cases, the average intelligent adult reader should be able to discern what a well-written poem is about. Now, you, you, I'm sure you can easily find lots of poetry that contradicts what I just said. But I'm, I really believe that the best poetry is discernible, at least at some level, quite quickly by an intelligent reader. There may be extra things they need to dive in, they need to spend time with, but really I believe a poem should invite the reader in. Yeah, that's excellent, Don, thank you. Um, you know, so I was thinking about all that you said um, and how people should approach poetry and process it. It kind of occurred to me that reading poetry can actually help in other areas of analysis. You know, um, I can say that in my own life, like um, I have a pretty good interest in poetry, but I'm also uh, at, the, at the tail end of a uh, graduate philosophy degree. And as somebody who had no prior experience um, in, at an undergraduate level with philosophy, being able to read poetry well really helped me to be able to sit down and get to the core of an argument or a thesis. And I think that that's another good reason to uh, read poetry. Um, so kind of piggybacking off that, um, do you have any ideas for getting kids or children interested in poetry? Um, because I think that um, like with anything else, if you start young, 
it becomes a lot easier to, to do in the future. So yeah, how, how would you go about that? Well, for kids, I'd say it's actually the opposite approach that you'd take than with, than with adults, because poetry is the native language of children. They love the playful musical sounds of the words, even if they don't have a clue what they mean. I mean, who cares if little Jack Horner is really a poem about some steward during the reign of Henry VIII who stole some real estate, which had been intended as a bribe for the king. It's the fun sound of the rhyme that makes it appealing. Think about skipping rhymes, about Dr. Seuss, about tongue twisters, about nonsense songs. I suggest that people read all kinds of poetry with their kids. Um, and in your day-to-day -day life, show them that it's okay to talk in fun and silly ways, to be playful with language, because that's what poetry is. Children love poetry until someone makes them feel stupid for not understanding everything in it. And there I'm gonna point uh, the big finger at, at our academic world, you know, because they love poetry that makes them look intelligent and other people look foolish. And that actually leads to a lot of poetry, which I think is, isn't as good or needs to be adapted for people. Um, so you have this playful music in the language and that comes before the comprehension. As children go, grow older, you gradually introduce them to deeper poems. Consider one such as Robert Frost's Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening and let them enjoy the poem at whatever level they want to. Again, it doesn't have to be a school thing where they need to be able to analyze it or write an essay about it. Just let them enjoy it and encourage them to memorize short poems and passages from the Psalms, for example. I believe memorizing the Psalms and other musical poetic pieces of scripture also instill a love for beautiful language. I grew up on the King James Version, which of course, incredibly beautiful, although some difficulties because of the, the language. But so I would you know, choose one of the more the more beautiful flowing translations, one that sounds good to the ear, even more so than one that you might want to use for theological study, because this, the, these things were written for the ear. They are written to be heard. And, and uh, this is why the King James Version the, the, is still considered some of the greatest poetry in the English language, even by people who don't value it as truth. Right, yeah, that's that's, that's amazing. I, I hear also that you're saying, um, obviously language, we know this is true, but poetry is very human. And so the academics are, or those who seem to cut people off of that and say, you know, this is sort of for those up here in the ivory tower, they're, they're doing a disservice to, to, uh, to those who would possibly love poetry. Um, and grow up on it and, and eventually learn to become better readers and so on. That's right. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I think going back then, let's just, um, uh, let me ask a question regarding your first publication. You know, how did that come about? What is it? Uh, uh, how did you feel when, you know, you received that acceptance or, you know, tell us about that. 
Okay, well, I'll, I'll kind of answer that in two different ways. Um, first of all, my earliest published poems in, in journals or magazines, um, first ones appeared in a journal called White Wall Review, which is a publication of Ryerson University in Toronto. And then another early one was Radix, which is a Christian arts publication out of Berkeley. Um, those were some of my earliest places where my poems appeared. And when that happened, that was just very exciting. And I'm sure anybody who's a poet or anybody who even wrote, dabbled in poetry and, and had something published or someone who's published articles or published some, you know, whatever. I mean, there is a thrill to that, a feeling of, okay, I'm not just writing in my, my back room, but I'm, I've written something and somebody out there reads it. I would suspect both uh, Riley and Bart that you had a very similar feeling when you got your hands on your first copy of a Solon, you know, that when that came, like you were just ecstatic because you had brought something exciting into the world. And even though some of my earliest poetry wasn't as strong, although some of the early ones I still really love, even so it was a beginning and, and it was a, it was a process and I was moving forward. Now, my first book was um, what's called a chapbook. And I know you gentlemen know about chapbooks, but just a, a very small staple stitch publication, which came out a year before my first full length book. This little chapbook is called So the Moon Would Not Be Swallowed. And that book is a collection of poems, all of them um, based on letters that my grandparents wrote home. They were missionaries in China from 1923 to 1951, and they were writing letters home to their family in Canada. And reading those letters inspired poetry for me. So it was really exciting to be able to put that together and have it actually accepted as a book, you know, because that is another step forward, just like those first publications in magazines. A first book, even though it's uh, not a, wasn't a, full-fledged production, just a smaller one. I mean, that's still equally exciting to, to have that happen. So yeah, I was, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to say it without being cliche almost. I have to think a while, you know, I'll start using, you know, cliches about how exciting that was for me. Yeah, yeah, Don. Um, yeah, I, I imagine that every poet uh, uh, feels that way, you know, as they're getting off the ground. Um, now, Back in those days, did you have a definitive experience that made you realize what your calling was with poetry? Um, I, I remember at the beginning of this, you said that your calling has also evolved into welcoming um, other Christian poets and helping them to kind of find themselves. Um, do you uh, do you think that you kind of your calling evolved as you were going along and, and it became a dual calling, or do you think that um, your calling is still mainly poetry, writing poetry. Well, first of all, I think, I guess I, I think of the term calling in the way that I think it is there. It is something God has called me to do, although my ears aren't always quite attuned to exactly what that is or where that will be. And I think each of us as Christians are like that. We receive a calling from God and we know he wants us to do things, but we don't necessarily know exactly what those are. Um, for me, it was, a, I was 
my call to poetry was fairly slow. I only discovered that poetry is my calling when I stopped and looked back and realized where I'd been and just realized how much sense that that made for me. I think of it a little bit as like when Jesus healed a, a man who'd been blind from birth. So I started looking about me and as I started seeing things at what at who God had made me to be and what had always been important to me through the years, it was suddenly plain to me, although I hadn't seen it earlier. What was the second part you were asking there, Riley? Or um, yeah, when did you start to um, feel the second call to uplift oh, the Christian poets? Right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was also fairly gra gradual. Um, again, I suppose I needed to begin to find my own way before I would have a clue about trying to help somebody else find their way. <laughs> you know, a little bit like that, um, that beam in our own eyes before we help somebody take the speck out of theirs. I guess the opposite, of course, because you're, you're assisting. But as time went along, I was always wanting to encourage other people who were on the same road that I was. I started a blog, actually, 11 years ago this week called Kingdom Poets. And as I was um, writing every week about different Christian poets, I really took the light in encouraging poets that weren't as far down the line, but um, we're doing okay. And then also I took, started taking delight, this may sound funny, but in encouraging poets who are actually dead. <laughs> that is to remind people of these people from the past who maybe are starting have, have slipped off the radar and to draw them back into our eyes and say, take a look here. And if you have followed um, the history of poetry, you'll often find that there are poets who were, might've been very popular in their day and then the next generation, their style of poetry goes out of fashion. And then hundred years later, suddenly people discover them anew and they go, wow, this person's amazing. And a lot of poets from um, 1600s, may have not had, you know, kind of slipped away and were brought back in the early 20th century, like people like T.S. Eliot, who really found, wow, these poets who I'm looking into, they're amazing. And suddenly, they're suddenly being brought back into the university as people to study because they were amazing poets. So in some ways, I'm encouraging those poets, if you want to, you know, think of it that way. But then, um, more recently, in my role at McMaster Divinity College, over the last two years, I've had a project called um, Poems for Ephesians, where I have poets write a poem based in some way inspired by the book of Ephesians. Now, on that particular site, people do not have to be established poets. I've had some very well-established poets. I've also had some people uh, who are writers but haven't really done much in poetry who've, who've written something for it, which is kind of cool or poets who are beginning, they're only starting to, they maybe hadn't even had, a, had anything published anywhere. And their very first poet, poetry um, credit was Poems for Ephesians. And they might get published right next to somebody like Malcolm Geit or um, Scott Cairns or Lucy Shaw or Jeannie Walker, you know, some amazing poets 
and their poet winds up, you know, the week before or the week after. So that's amazing. I so want to read all those poems now. <laughs> um, so I this question leads a little bit into what you were uh, leans into a, a little bit more what you were sort of describing um, in your answer just now. Um, but do you find yourself now writing from intuition more than writing from authorial influence? And especially, uh, I, I also want to ask a second part to this. So like when you were starting off, which one was it? Was it authorial influence mm -hmm. or was it intuition or how did, did you, what, what was that process like? Well, you're right, Bart, in that the way we write evolves. Um, and it's harder for me to look back to the same extent and answer that as I could right now. But to, to answer it, first of all, I'd say right now, it certainly is more from intuition. Although I am always seeking to find inspiration from other writers, looking at what they're doing, looking at what they're thinking, looking at approaches they're taking, even to write in a way that almost fights against what they're doing to try to take it in a different way. But to learn from other people, I mean, that's that's extremely important. And um, but I try to write much more from, and I'm not sure if intuition is the right word, but maybe it is. Inspiration, maybe that's the word. Imagination, um, that may be the word. But I I wouldn't say that I follow other poets' styles very much. Um, and I think we'll probably get into that as we go along. Um, so do you, um, do you find any particular school of poetry very particularly inspiring, like postmodern or modern, Renaissance, classical? Uh, does, any, does anything like that, do you find yourself kind of gravitating back to uh, like any particular time? Thanks, Riley. Um, first, I want to say that these labels that we put on the different um, schools of poetry or time periods, they're really much more useful for those people who are writing essays about poetry than for people who are actually writing poetry. Um, John Donne, for example, would be extremely surprised to hear himself being referred to as a metaphysical poet. Um, academics are the ones who talk about the different schools of poetry, but even so, I must say that I love a lot of metaphysical poetry. I also love the romantics. Um, I love the best of early modernist poetry. And yet, and in extension, a lot of 20th century free verse, but yet I still find that I appreciate what some of the new formalists are doing. Now, it might sound a bit like I'm a politician here when I, I'm giving that answer, a, a po politician of poetry. But again, if you take a look at my blog, Kingdom Poets, you'll find a huge diversity of the type of poets you find there. Because I don't think there's any one school that says, okay, now this group, they figured out what poetry really should be. The fact is every poet brings who they are to it. Any art form, you, you know, if we, had, if we had the answer that there was one way to write a poem and there was one best poem in the world, then that you know, then everybody be just imitating that. But it's because we are creative. We're trying to take things and do different things that we um, interact with it. 
For my own poetry, I strive to write for the 21st century. There obviously will be influences from the past, but for, for example, I, I find it important that I use contemporary language and speak with a contemporary voice. Um, one trend I've noticed in some recent poetry that I particularly dislike is that some less refined recent poetry tends to have this subjectivist attitude. This attitude that says it doesn't matter how your poetry is interpreted because, you know, in these people's view, all meaning is private and personal. But I believe that the best poets, regardless of what school they belong to, what era, what even what religion, they are those who look at the world with a belief that inherent in it is truth and that they just might be able to discover some of that truth. So many poets have done that. They approach their poetry by seeking to discover truth. Mm. Not that they're gonna find all truth, but that they will find some of it. And the best poets care about the particular and they're concerned with using language precisely. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, that that kind of makes me think that you affirm like an objective standard of, of good poetry, uh, but it can be expressed in different ways as time goes on. Um, that's right. But, right, but the but the content is still objectively good, which. <laughs> It makes me kind of, um, I hate to ask, it's a dreaded question every author gets asked, but um, can, uh, can poetry be learned through form and, uh, um, or, or are writers just kind of born, do you think? I believe that there's a combination of those things. Um, first of all, any skill that God gives us, we can either nurture it or not. And the fact that's not to put myself up on a pedestal because I'm sure there are many things that God has given me which I have successfully neglected. You know, and I've, I've not nurtured as I should. But this is one I believe I have. I do believe that there are certain things that draw us towards different arts. For example, I'm drawn more towards poetry than I am towards painting. Well, one, I happen to be an auditory learner. So because of that, I'm, I'm listening as opposed to looking in many ways. And I'm speaking as opposed to drawing. I listen to the sounds. So early on, I was, draw, I was drawn into to the beautiful music of the King James Version. I loved music. I grew up in the 60s and I grew up on this great music and it spoke to me and it meant, and it, it grabbed me. And from there looking at good lyrics and then realizing, you know, that only the songwriting only goes so far, let's go a little deeper. Let's find some even better writing. And there's all these poets out there. And I started learning in those ways. So I think different people are, are, are or have orientation. I don't know if that's the right word, more towards visual arts or more towards auditory arts or or whatever, or performance. You know, some people are just, you, you just see somebody and say, oh, well, they're a born dancer or they're a, they're a born um, actor. Well, 
if you just said that to somebody implying that they didn't have to work at their art form, then, you know, they might get very ticked off with you, you know, that they've worked and worked and worked you know, on their dancing and just said, oh, you're a born dancer and left it at that. So I think, I think that um, those things all work together. There's things that we're given and then we, we develop them from there. Don, so when you set out to write a poem, um, do you have the whole in mind or do you take it line by line or stanza by stanza? Um, yeah, and maybe tell of how you began to learn the form or, um, and then where you took that from there. Okay, well, first of all, every poem is different, but I try not to determine ahead of time where the poem is going. Instead of writing a poem to say what I think, I try to write a poem to discover what I think, but also to give the reader a chance to pause and consider what she might think, hopefully without me being too heavy handed in the process. So it's a place of discovery, both for the writer and for the reader. So if I come, if I approach it by saying, okay, I'm gonna write a poem about this truth of the gospel, this particular truth, it's probably gonna fall flat. But if I start writing something, a poem about some aspect of Jesus' life, and then suddenly this truth jumps out of it, it's more likely to be real. It's more likely to be poetic. Um, so I just play with words and images and concepts and let them go where they want to go, always weighing them to make sure that they're telling the truth and try to shine fresh light on various aspects of our lives here on this planet. There was another second part to that question, Riley, which I've totally forgotten already. <laughs> oh yeah, it was, it was simply, um... Uh, in terms of the form, like learning the form, do they, when you learn it, do they teach you to take it, to have the end in mind or to, you know, to discover, as you said, what you're thinking? Well, I, well, some forms require a little bit more planning than others. For example, if you're writing a sonnet, you at least need to, you know, you're, you know, ahead, it's only 14 lines you know you've got a certain rhyme st structure and hopefully you don't have already planned where it's going at the end. You sort of get going with it and let it see where it takes you. But part of that is, is just getting, getting used to the structure, the form. I don't do a lot of formal poetry, although I do write sonnets and other, other structured verse, but I, really like letting giving them their own their own organic form and letting them see where they want me to go i find that i'm learning new approaches all the time um, i find i'm much more ready for example to take if i'm right working on a poem to suddenly take it and i've written 10 lines and i might take the first five and suddenly totally rearrange the order of them, take the fourth line and make it the beginning and see what happens there and see if it's better. So I will change things and rework things and see if by coming at it from a different direction, it might flow better because flow is pretty important or that I might, um, or maybe 
as I'm going along, I find that the real topic of the poem is a little different than I thought, and I want to kind of introduce that a little earlier. Things like that. I do. I'm a fanatical reviser. I work work it and change it and and manipulate it quite a bit as I'm going along, and um, which which I find um, very helpful. But being free to do that, not to fear that oh, I've got it. I've got this line down now. I can't change it at all. Well, obviously it's working. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We we have um, we really enjoyed uh, reading your work, Don, and uh, we really appreciate your time today. And if you could, uh, if you'd be willing to close us out with a reading of one of your poems that you published with us, uh, that'd be absolutely amazing. Okay. Well, I think what I'll do is I'll read the poem that um, Bart referred to earlier, "An Angel Questions Our Answers," and. Um, this, by the way, is one of the poems that will be in my new book that'll be coming out this year. Um, the book will be called Angelicus, and every one of the poems is written from the point of view of an angel. So there's the three that um, are in your journal are all from that, that series. Um, so in, that, in this collection, there are 64 poems, all of which have, have uh, are written from that perspective. Some of them are extremely lighthearted and some of them are are very serious and you know very some of them are very whimsical coming at, at things from different angles but I found it's uh what's what this angle has afforded me is a chance to talk about the ordinary world from a very interesting perspective because the spiritual things get drawn into it or sometimes to talk about very very deep things in a very whimsical way so anyway this is called An Angel Questions Our Answers. We see you all love games that show how much you know, the puzzles you're able to master faster than anyone, how you can piece bits to fit due to your ex expertise. But please, descendant of dust, trust us when we say there's so much more you don't get. Consider the birds, the flocks and herds scattered figuratively on the hillside. Why would the good Lord have chosen untamed words for revealing himself to you? Scattered poetic analogies concealing what would have let you settle comfortably into your knowing. Why stories? A flash of sword kaleidoscoping overflowing fields, forcing you from head to heart. Why such incarnations half heard on a steep slope that vary with every telling, making you ponder and wonder and confess you only understand in part? Please don't fight about who's right when together you share hope. That was beautiful, Don. Thank you. Um, yeah, such, that's such a wonderful poem. I love that poem. Thank you Thank so you much so for much. reading it for us. Yes, yeah. Um, I even noticed like it, it's even better read aloud. I kind of wonder now um, if you're more like of an oratory uh, poet or just more of like a sit down and read it, you know, kind of kind of deal. Well, I really believe that good poetry needs to work in both ways. It needs to be to work out loud, but it, but oral poetry needs to also work on the page. Um, and that's, that's not to say that 
um, that some other forms forms aren't valid, but um, but what I'm saying is that I think the best poetry does that. It causes you causes you to think about it, so you want to go back and look at it. But on the other hand, it needs to have that musical quality to it to to draw draw you into it and move you forward. I find delight in that kind of stuff, and I think that that's important, even though it's play. That play is important, and it's all part of um, that creative process God gave us. Right, yeah, and I think one of the best things about your poetry is that you can be whimsical and yet profound at the same time, um, just like with, with that poem that you just read us. Um, and I love, I love, love, love the, the concept of uh, Angelicus, um, and I'm, I'm so looking forward to reading it when it comes out. Um, so anyway, thank you. Thank you so much, Don. Uh, do you have anything else for us, Bart? Um, no, it's just, I'm kind of floored with, you know, <laughs> the fact that you read it. That's, that's pretty awesome. You never know what it's uh, uh, meant to sound like until you have the author read it, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, anyway, so I just want to thank you, Don, for joining us on the podcast as we finish up. And thanks for, uh, for listening. If you listened on the podcast, uh, we appreciate you. And yeah, we, uh, we love that you're on this ride with us. Thank you, everyone.